Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christiania.org, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today is Friday, February 6, 2015, and we're here to present the Epistles of Paul, 1 Corinthians, part 19 of this series. It's the final installment in this series. It's subtitled, Anasima Maranatha, If They Only Knew, in, in reference to the fact that Judeo-Christians love to repeat the phrase, but have not a clue as to what it really means. The, um, before I start, I, I want to say a couple of words uh, about, um, about division. There are, um, and I expressed this a long time ago, there are certain things that identity Christians should all agree on. Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ, or Yahshua Christ, is Yahweh God incarnate. That's one. We'll count that as one thing. That these people known as the, as the Jews are certainly not the children of Israel and are absolutely 100% irredeemable. That's two. They're all going to, the, going to hell. There is no doubt whatsoever. The third thing that we must agree on is that the other races have no part in Scripture whatsoever. No hope of eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. Most of the people who listen to my programs know that I believe that they descended from corruptions created by the so-called fallen angels, that they are not a part of God's creation. I don't expect other people to believe that. It took me um, years of study and reflection to arrive at that conclusion. I'm confident in that belief. I can express it. I can teach it. I have a thousand times here. But I'm not going to beat you over the head if you don't believe it. But don't try to admit a nigger into the kingdom of God because that is opposition to Yahweh. The other races have no part in Scripture. They have no part whatsoever in the promises of Scripture. And if you want to leave it there, that's fine. I don't care if you don't agree with me on where they came from. Those three things, we have to we have to agree upon if we want to agree with God. There's a lot of peripheral issues that we don't have to agree upon that we can differ upon, especially issues that aren't clearly spelled out in Scripture and do take years of, of study in, in order to um, arrive at a conclusion. And some people still arrive at different conclusions for different reasons. A lot of that depends on their, their, their education, their ecclesiastical background, the baggage they bring in from their past lives when they find... Christian identity. There are things that we could disagree on, but as long as we're not scattering the sheep, 
We can discuss those things man to man. We can hopefully hash them out through scholarship, through study, and, and through um, intercourse with one another as long as we're not scattering the sheep. And Christ says, he who does not gather with me scatters. We only seek to gather the sheep. That's those, that goes back to those first three issues that we have to agree on. The nature of Christ, the nature of the Jew, and the, and, and the role of the other races in the Bible, which is absolutely none because they have no role in the Bible. And as long as we exclude them, it doesn't matter what we think of where they came from or where they're going. We'll have those answers soon enough. There are people that um, seek to divide the sheep based on those peripheral issues or based upon their own dogmas that they want to make into doctrines. And those people are not doing us any favors. They are not edifying the body of Christ. You don't have to attack a fellow Christian who agrees on the foundational principles over a peripheral issue because you're doing a disservice to the body of Christ. There's um just, just as an example, there's a certain clown that, that, that um, runs the Christian Identity Forum. I never thought he was a clown, but he's proved himself a clown by casting dispersions at me for no good reason on one of those peripheral issues. And now that I've um, withdrawn the audio feeds that I use to populate other websites with my podcasts. Now he's, he's casting even further dispersions at me. And he can go to hell. I don't owe any man anything. That's what the Bible says. Owe no man anything except to love one another. Now, I haven't hated this person. I simply just withdrew my intellectual material from being posted on his website, which happened automatically, because I felt like it, because I don't have an obligation to him or to anybody. My only obligation is to Jesus Christ. That's it. So if you're going to cast dispersions at me over a peripheral issue, and I shut my audio feed off on Christogenia because I don't think that you should be um, posting my material. If, if you can't, if you have to make it a point to openly disagree with me on a peripheral issue. It's that simple. I don't owe you a thing. And you know who you are. I'm not going to advertise your, your, your forum. I don't owe you a thing. And you can just go post somebody else's podcast on your forum. Maybe you could find somebody that you agree with, like Don Spears or, or Jeremy Visser or, or some other clown that thinks that Satan, Satan is in heaven, even though the Bible tells us that Satan was cast out for the earth. 
So that, that's a peripheral issue, and that's an example. It's a peripheral issue that, well, I'm not going to beat anybody over the head with as long as he isn't scattering the sheep. That's it. That's one example. There are many. Well, we have um, many divisions in Christian identity that are that people that, that are caused when people claim the things that Wesley Swift taught rather than move on and, and realize that Wesley Swift, while he was a good man, there's no doubt Wesley Swift was a good man, he was a man. He made some mistakes. We, if we are going to run the race and fight the good fight, we have to study the scripture, realize that our human teachers are going to make some mistakes and move forward and change our paradigm when the scripture tells us something different than what these old teachers taught us. That's why. I mean, Bertrand Compare was another great man, but he believed that Russia was going to invade America and, and, and the United Nations was the second beast back in the 1980s, and it didn't happen. None of it happened the way he thought it was going to play out, so we discredit all his work? No, we don't. He did us many great works and great services, but we correct his mistakes. We throw away the chaff. We separate the, the stone from the straw, and we seek to build upon the stone. It's that simple. I know I'm going to make mistakes. I pray I catch them before you. And if I don't, I pray somebody catches them and corrects them. Because I don't want them. I don't want to stand on my mistakes in stubbornness and stiff-neckedness. Stiff-neckedness, that's not right. We have to be willing to identify the better scholarship according to the scripture and, and to change our paradigm and to move forward, to look forward, not to cling to the, to the weighty things of the past that really only tie us down. That's all I'll say about that, attempting to um, kill a few birds with one stone. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. The Epistles of Paul, 1 Corinthians, part 19. I'm not going to make a career out of the letters of Paul, but we'll probably be here for another year. That's okay. I'm going to do my best to be thorough. There are, and, and this conversation, this opening conversation is based upon um, things that I, I heard and things that I spoke about after last Friday's program, after part 18 in my discussion of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There are some fatalistic passages in the Old Testament which may lead men to believe that their spirits are dead after their fleshly bodies die, or, as some are persuaded, 
that perhaps those spirits are merely asleep until the restoration or resurrection, if you'll have it. Yet, there is a larger picture presented by Scripture which stands in contrast to the fatalistic passages. And perhaps men today are misinterpreting those fatalistic passages because they are not what they seem to be on the surface. Not always. For instance, in the book of Job, in Job chapter 10, we see these words spoken by Job himself. And, and let me offer a caveat here. When we read the book of Job, we must be careful not to quote, because I've seen pastors do this. We must be careful not to quote the words of Job's contentious friends as if they were the scripture. Those friends and their words were not justified by Yahweh. Job's words were justified by Yahweh. Job was a pious man. So when we quote in the book of Job, make sure it's Job we're quoting and not his friends. In the book of Job, chapter 10, the words of Job, are not my days few. Cease then and let me alone that I may take comfort a little. Before I go whence, I shall not return even to the land of darkness and the shadow of death. A land of darkness as darkness itself and of the shadow of death without any order and where the light is as darkness. Thusly did Job perceive death. But the same Job said later in chapter 19 of his book, For I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the later day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. So when Job speaks of the land of darkness, from which he shall not return, was he speaking of the flesh only, or was he speaking of the spirit also? In the Gospel of John, in chapter 6, Joshua Christ says, in verse 63, it is the spirit which produces life. The flesh does not benefit anything. The words which I have spoken to you are spirit, and our life. The prophet Samuel was beckoned out of that land of darkness of which Job had spoken. And Samuel is portrayed as having said to Saul, Why hast thou troubled me that I should come up? Now, many dispute that this was really Samuel. However, the scripture plainly states that it was Samuel. And, in, in, and the spirit of Samuel gave a prophecy to Saul that David would be given the kingdom and that Saul and his sons would be slain the very next day. And they were. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, where it says, 
and Saul instantly fell at his full length upon the earth and was greatly afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no longer any strength in him, for he had eaten no bread all that day and all that night. Now, much later, so Saul feared for the words of Samuel, which Samuel, the spirit of Samuel, had spoken. Much later in the history of Israel, in the first book of Chronicles, in chapter 10, it says of this very episode in verse 13, So Saul died for his transgressions, wherein he transgressed against God, against the word of Yahweh, for as much as he kept it not, because Saul inquired of a wizard to seek counsel and Samuel the prophet answered him. And he sought not Yahweh. So he slew him and turned the kingdom over to, the, to David, the son of Jesse. So the writer of 1 Chronicles believed that Samuel the prophet did indeed prophecy after his death, as 1 Samuel chapter 28 portrays. And so does the writer of the wisdom of Sirach, who wrote a few hundred years after 1 Chronicles was compiled. And the wisdom of Sirach says in chapter 46 that Samuel, the prophet of Yahweh, beloved of his Lord, established a kingdom and anointed princes over his people. And then in verse 20 of that chapter it says, and after his death he prophesied and showed the king his end, meaning that he showed Saul that he was going to be slain the very next day, and lifted up his voice from the earth in prophecy to blot out the wickedness of the people. While Samuel was dead in the flesh, Samuel evidently continued to have life in the spirit. Now, outside of this episode concerning Samuel, because the Bible does only give us sparse few examples, there is the famous event known as the Transfiguration on the Mount, where in three of the four gospel accounts, the apostles testified to the brief appearance of both Moses and Elijah with Christ. And how... Christ was seen speaking to them. In addition to this, the Apostle Peter says in chapter 3 of his first epistle, because Christ also suffered once for all errors or sins, the just on behalf of the unjust, in order that he may lead you to, to Yahweh, Indeed, dying in the flesh, but being made to live by the Spirit, at which also, going, he proclaimed to those spirits in prison, who had at one time been disobedient, when the forbearance of Yahweh awaited in the days of Noah's preparing the vessel, in which a few, that is, eight souls, had been preserved through water. 
With this, we see that Christ himself is portrayed by Peter as preaching the gospel to the spirits of those men who died before the flood of Noah and whom the departed Samuel and all others must have also been among. Before Peter's statements concerning Christ preaching to the souls in prison are interpreted by us, we must first realize that Peter himself explained them for us in the next chapter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, where he said, they, ostensibly referring, if we check the text, to those nations in apostasy which were mentioned in the prior verse, they shall give an account to him who holds ready to judge the living and the dead. Indeed, for this also, to the dead, the good message has been announced that they may indeed be judged like men in the flesh, but live like Yahweh in the spirit. God is a spirit, as is each and every Adamic man which he created. This may raise the question of what is often referred to as soul sleep, and I hear this a lot. The idea that the spirit goes into a state of prolonged sleep after the death of the body, to be awakened at some point in the future. This, I believe, comes from a misunderstanding of the word for sleep as a euphemism for the death of the fleshly body. Insisting upon soul sleep as a doctrine, one must also imagine that the world, the world, not the word, the world of God in the spirit, the spiritual realm, if you will, is bound to the construct of time as it is known in the world of the fleshly creation, the fleshly realm, the physical realm. We would insist that the world of the spirit, the spiritual realm, the realm of God, exists outside of time. And it is not at all bound by the limitations which we have in the physical realm. With all of this, we perceive the revelation of a greater truth that is evident in many ways throughout Scripture that the spirits of Adamic men are indeed immortal because, as the wisdom of Solomon says at the end of its second chapter, God created the Adamic race to be immortal. That same Yahshua Christ who tells us that it is the spirit which produces life, the spirit of God, of course, in John chapter 6 is recorded as having said, if one should not be born from water and spirit, he is not able to enter into the kingdom of Yahweh. Now, ostensibly, there are many, we'll call them men for the purpose of this conversation. There are many men, I shudder at calling some of them men or most of the men. There are many men on this planet 
that are only born of water. The flesh, Christ, de Christ himself defines what he means by water in the very next statement where he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So, being born of water and the spirit means the fleshly birth and the spiritual birth, which happens ostensibly, as we learn from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at conception. The same Yahshua Christ who tells us that it is the Spirit that produces life in John chapter 6 says if one should not be born from water and Spirit, he is not able to enter into the kingdom of Yahweh. Men are born with that Spirit, as Paul explains In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in John chapter 3, he also said, unless a man should be born from above. And he clarifies that meaning by saying water and the spirit. Unless a man should be born from above, he is not able to see the kingdom of Yahweh. Being born of the Spirit, the Adamic man is born in the kind after kind image and likeness of God, which we see at the end of Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, as we see in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, as Adam begat a son. I'm skipping the part about the 130 years old. As Adam begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Having this spirit as a gift from God, man has life and will have a part in the resurrection of Christ. Not having the spirit, not being a pure descendant of Adam, there's simply no part in the resurrection. It all boils down to this. Does the, correction, does the creation of God function as he made it, or can man corrupt the creation of God and expect it to function? That's what it all boils down to. All of history in the Bible boils down to that issue. God made a damnic man to be immortal. Man corrupts his race. The results are no longer immortal. It's that simple. Follow the law of God. Because we don't have a choice in the long run if we are going to continue to exist. Having this spirit as a gift from God, man has life and will have a part in the resurrection of Christ. However, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, not all flesh is the same flesh. 
And the other apostles also describe those men who do not have the Spirit of God. Jude professes this in verse 19 of his short epistle. And the apostle John warns in chapter 4 of his first epistle to believe believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. These we shall discuss further at the end of this presentation in connection with 1 Corinthians 16.22. In Psalm 106, we see this statement, and it's spoken of the children of Israel. They joined themselves also unto Balpeor and ate the sacrifices of the dead. And from the text, the subsequent verses, we know that the reference is to the account in Numbers chapter 25, where it says, And Israel abode in Shittim. And the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. Paul referred to the same event as fornication in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The other apostles referred to it as the error of Balaam. And ostensibly, the phrase, the dead, refers not to Balpeor, but to the Moabites, who had mingled themselves with the Canaanite tribes and who did not have that same spirit which Yahweh bestowed upon the children of Adam. There are the walking dead, those who the apostles call clouds without water. Jude calls them twice dead. And then there are the Adamic people who die, who are also called the dead, but they live in the spirit, so therefore they are also called the living. In Psalm 115, we see the words from verse 17. The dead praise not Yahweh, neither any that go down into silence. But we will bless Yahweh from this time forth and forevermore. Praise ye Yahweh. If all men die, how can anyone praise Yahweh forever? How does that work? Sometimes these references to the living and the dead are actually contrasting those who have the Spirit of God and those who do not, but who are among the twice dead described by the Apostle Jude. When they're dead in body, they're dead in spirit. Therefore, we see the words of Christ in three of the Gospel accounts. And here we'll read from the version supplied in Mark chapter 12. And Christ says, And as touching the dead, concerning the dead, I'm quoting the King James Version, that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spoke unto him, saying, I am 
not I was. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. The point which Christ makes here is that if Abraham or Isaac or Jacob were dead, then Yahweh is not their God. He's not the God of the dead. However, if they live, then Yahweh is indeed their God because he is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So Christ says in another place, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he has seen and is delighted. And those last two verbs are in the aorist tense. In fact, I'm sorry, all three verbs are in the aorist tense. It's not past tense. The aorist tense is a tense that um, indicates that an action began in the past, but is not yet over. Before proceeding, we must ask this. If the spirit of a man is not conscious after his death, of what meaning is the judgment? Paul says in one place, in Hebrews chapter 9, it is appointed unto men to die once, but after this, the judgment. And in another, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Now, in that same epistle, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul spoke of Yahshua Christ, and he said, from verse 15, that Yahshua Christ is the blessed and only ruler, king of kings, and sovereign of sovereigns or Lord of Lords, if you will. He alone having immortality. He alone. A light dwelling, unapproachable. And, of course, that is true. That is true. No doubt. Only Yahweh God himself truly has immortality. However, the Adamic spirit is from that same God, and it is indeed immortal as a gift from God. So we have, if we're Adamic men, we have immortality as a gift from God, not from ourselves, as Paul explains at length in Romans chapter 5. And he says briefly in Ephesians chapter 2, for in favor you are being preserved through faith, and this, Yahweh's gift, is not of yourselves, not from works, lest anyone would boast. So our immortality, the immortality bestowed on the Adamic race is a gift from God because even though our spirits are immortal, 
they're immortal with the grace and the favor of God. That doesn't negate the promise. Christ told the apostles to not fear what man can do, but to fear he who can throw the spirit into the lake of fire or Gehenna. I'm paraphrasing, but you get the point. Only Yahweh God can destroy the spirit. No man. And that's the point that Christ is making as to why we should not fear man. We should not fear man because we have that gift of eternal life, that immortality from God. Therefore, in 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said that the work, speaking about men's lives and, and the things that they do, that the work of each will become evident. Indeed, that they will disclose it, because in fire it is revealed. And of what quality the work of each is, the fire will scrutinize. If the work of anyone who has built remains, he will receive a reward. If the work of anyone burns completely, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be preserved. Why did Paul say that? Because Paul understood the Old Testament promises of God in concert with the New Testament promises of grace, favor, and mercy for the Adamic race. Which are in Christ. If the work of anyone and of course he's only speaking about the children of Israel, of anyone, burns completely. He will suffer loss, but he himself will be preserved. He'll lose his reward. Although consequently through fire. Do you not know, 1 Corinthians, Three seventeen. I'm sorry, three sixteen. Do you not know that you are a temple of Yahweh, and that the spirit of Yahweh dwells in you? If anyone should spoil the temple of Yahweh, Yahweh will spoil the same. You will have no reward. Indeed, the temple of Yahweh is holy, such as which you are. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he wrote from verse 3, And if then, 
our good message is covered in the sense of hiding it, obscuring it. By those being destroyed, it is covered. Those bastard eternal enemies of God. By whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. By whom, let's, that, that could have said through whom, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. In other words, the demonic, satanic forces at play in the world had used these Edomite, Canaanite enemies of God to blind the minds of the unbelieving. That's what Paul's saying there. By whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving for not to shine the light. Of the good message of the honor of the anointed who are the image of Yahweh. We do not proclaim ourselves, but Prince Yahshua Christ, and of ourselves, your bondmen, for the sake of Yahshua, because Yahweh, speaking out of darkness, shines forth light, which is shown in our hearts for illumination of the knowledge of the honor of Yahweh in the person of Yahshua Christ. Now, and here's an important passage. Now, we have this treasure in earthen vessels in order that the greatness of the power would be of Yahweh and not from us because we have life through the spirit, not through the flesh of man. The treasure in earthen vessels is a reference to the immortal spirit within the Adamic man. As the prophet Isaiah referred to the children of Israel, I actually didn't record the, the chapter, I'm sorry, it's Isaiah 50-something, 50, 52, 56, I forget. As Isaiah referred to the children of Israel as ye who bear the vessels of the Lord. A passage which Paul quotes later in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. First, in relation to this treasure in earthen vessels, Paul says further in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, therefore we know that if perhaps our earthly house of the tabernacle would be destroyed, We have a building from Yahweh, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's that spirit of God within us that's eternal. I'm sorry, I lost my place for a moment. And we bemoan in this, and this goes hand in hand with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about this mortal wanting to put on his immortality and this corruption to put on incorruption. 
that we yearn for that eternal life which our race was promised from the beginning. And because of the sins of our first parents, we experience death. We still shall live as God has planned for us from the beginning. And we do. And we bemoan in this yearning to be clothed with our dwelling which is from of heaven, that eternal spirit, putting away this earthly flesh, this corruption. If indeed, even being stripped, we shall not be found naked. And indeed, we who are being burdened in the tabernacle, meaning in this flesh, be moaned, since we wish not to be stripped, but to be clothed, in order that the mortal would be consumed by life. This is that change. Paul is trying to explain it once again. This is that change of which Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul had written to Corinthians in answer to a letter which he had received in response to this epistle that we know as 1 Corinthians. Ostensibly, he describes the change he speaks of in 1 Corinthians in a different manner in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he writes of Israel, yet their minds were hardened. Even to this day, today, the same veil remains upon the reading of the Old Covenant, which not being uncovered is left unemployed in Christ. In other words, there are secrets in the Old Testament. There are secrets because men's minds were hardened. And these things in the Old Testament which men did not realize even they are no longer necessary in Christ. They're being left unemployed in Christ. Then, until this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies upon their hearts. But when perhaps you should turn to the prince, Turn to Christ. The veil is taken away. Now the prince is the spirit. Paul is saying the prince is the, the, the spirit of God. The prince is God. Christ is God. The prince is the spirit. As he himself professes in John chapter 14, he is the Holy Spirit. And where the spirit of the prince is, there is freedom. And we all, with uncovered faces, are beholding as in a mirror the honor of the prince. We are being transformed into that same image from honor into honor, just as a spirit from the prince. This revelation of the spirit and this change into the same image can only be possible as Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
where he says in verse 19 that if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are the most pitiable of all mankind. We must have hope in Christ in death as well. So we know that our Christian hope survives in death as well as in life. And that, in verse 22, just as in Adam all die, then in that manner, in Christ, all shall be produced alive. Because the Adamic man, being in the image of God, was made to be immortal. And finally, in verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual. Where we must know that if indeed we are Adamic men, if indeed that seed is in us, if that seed is in us, kind after kind, then we have that spiritual body gifted to us from Yahweh our God. And just as we have born the likeness of that of soil, the soil, the fleshly comes first, not the spiritual, the fleshly comes first because it all comes from the seed the body and the spirit, if indeed it's the seed of Adam. And just as we have borne the likeness of the fleshly, we shall bear the likeness of that of heaven. Paraphrasing 1 Corinthians 15.49. Each and every Adamic man has the spirit of Yahweh within him that Yahweh has gifted to the Adamic race as a component of his creation. Through that immortal spirit is the gift of life and the promise of resurrection to life, meaning resurrection back to the physical realm in the renewal of the flesh. Until that ultimate resurrection, Paul exhorts us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to therefore always have courage, knowing that residing in the body, we sojourn away from the Lord. Indeed, we walk by faith, not by that which is seen. Now we have courage, and we are still more pleased to travel out of the body. That preposition means apart from the body, and to reside with the Lord. On which account we also strive eagerly, either residing at home, meaning that when we're with God, we're at home, or sojourning meaning that while we're on earth, we are spirits of God in a sojourn on earth. This is not our home. To be pleasing to him. Yahweh willing, 
soon we shall present Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. And we shall examine in depth how Paul explains these many statements which he has made here in this epistle in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, especially those in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians elaborates in great detail on what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul finally departs from all of his didactic instructions and responses to things which the Corinthians have written to him and addresses more practical matters of ecclesiastical administration. And that's where we are now. With verse 1, now concerning that collection that is for the saints, just as I had prescribed to the assemblies of Galatia, in that manner also you should do. And I'm probably going to be a little winded here also. And, and, um, and I hope this isn't too technical, these, these next few verses at least. It is evident that we only have a portion of all of the epistles which were written by Paul of Tarsus. As we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was at least one epistle to the Corinthians written by Paul before this one, which we consider to be first. Therefore, this so-called first epistle is only the first of the two which have actually survived to us. And they're very well may have been even more than three. As we established while presenting the book of Acts, both Paul's confrontation with Peter, which is described in Galatians chapter 2, and then the writing of his epistle to the Galatians must have happened when Paul had traveled to Syria, gone to Antioch, as it is described in Acts chapter 18 in verses 22 and 23, where it says, and when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, meaning that he went to Jerusalem, he went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order to strengthen all the disciples. Paul's visit to the Galatians was soon after he had written that epistle. His writing of the epistle must have been sometime while he was in Antioch after he had confronted Peter. And the epistle reflects Paul's anticipation to visit them in its fourth chapter, verses 18 and 20. In that single surviving epistle to the Galatians, there's no mention of any instruction for a collection to the saints in Jerusalem. There is only a brief mention of the division of the duties of the apostles in the first chapter, where he said that Paul and Barnabas would be to the uncircumcised and the other apostles to the circumcised. And then Paul says only that we should remember the poor, the same thing which I had then been anxious to do. 
However, there are no instructions regarding a collection, as Paul mentions here. Therefore, here in these comments, this opening verse of 1 Corinthians 16, Paul seems to be alluding to another later and now lost letter to the Galatians in which he had given such instructions. As Paul writes this epistle, it is now about three years since he had been to Galatia, since Paul is writing in Ephesus towards the end of his last year, of his three-year sojourn in that city, which is evident later in this very chapter, comparing Luke's account in Acts chapter 19. Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians is written, as we have also established in our Acts presentation, as Paul passes through Macedonia and route to Greece during the journey which is recorded in the opening verses of Acts chapter 20. In that second epistle, Paul once again mentions the collection for the poor of Jerusalem in much greater detail in chapter 9 of the epistle. Verse 2, 1 Corinthians 16. On every first of the week, each of you by himself must lay up, treasuring whatever he may grant for the journey in order that when I come, when I should come, there would not be collections then. Paul hopes that the Corinthians have their gifts for the disadvantaged apostles and faithful in Jerusalem prepared before he arrives in Corinth. He must have given similar instructions to the Galatians. However, there is no clear record of how Paul obtained that gift to bring to Jerusalem. Considering what he says in verse 3 here, he may not have brought it at all, and the Galatians may have sent it themselves. Later, when Paul recounts his last visit to Jerusalem, after he was arrested, he says in Acts chapter 24, Now, after many years, I came bringing alms to my nation and offerings. These alms and offerings are the collections for the poor in Jerusalem which Paul had brought with him, which are described in these epistles. Here in verse 2, and as most other versions have done, we've written the English word weak, where the majority text has the genitive plural, and all of the extant Greek uncial manuscripts have the singular form of the word sabaton, or sabbath. In either event, the sabaton, the word sabaton was used to refer to the seven-day Sabbath cycle, as well as to the Sabbath day itself, evidently because the Greeks themselves had no word for week. It is evident throughout Scripture, and the Greeks didn't even have a seven-day week in their history until after the time of Constantine. The Romans experimented with length, weeks of different lengths, and those weeks, the Roman weeks, were actually um, originally based around what they called the market day, 
the day in which the people in the countryside would come to the city in order to buy and sell. That was the market day. And the Romans, before the time of Julius Caesar, had um, an eight-day week based on the cycle of the market day. After the time of the Caesars, Julius and Augustus, or during, I should say, that period, that's when they began to transform, and it took several centuries, transform their society to be based on a seven-day week, which the, um, the Babylonians celebrated as well as the Hebrews which they regulated their calendar by, I should say, as well as the Hebrews. It is evident throughout Scripture that Christians considered the first day of each week to be the day following the Sabbath day, and therefore it was called the first of the Sabbath, referring to the seven-day Sabbath cycle. In the Gospels, in the opening verses of Matthew chapter 28, Mark chapter 16, Luke chapter 24, and John chapter 20, and I point to these days, these accounts concerning the resurrection because they are the easiest ones to understand. It is manifest that the day immediately after the Sabbath was indeed considered the first day of the week. Then we see in places such as at John chapter 20 at verse 19 or in Acts chapter 20 at verse 7, the Christians were gathered on the first day of the week, the first day of the Sabbath, evidently for the purpose of breaking bread. And that's mentioned in those two places. But neither of these passages imply that the first day of the week was some new Christian Sabbath, and neither passage can be taken to mean that the apostles had somehow changed the Sabbath day for Christians, as even very early Christian writers seem to have interpreted these passages, and they did. Not, and and, and the, the Lord's Day was celebrated on the day after the Sabbath by some very early early Christians, but that doesn't make it biblical or scriptural. Neither do these passages, John 20, verse 19, or Acts 20, verse 7, imply that Christians did not gather on other days as these two passages do not indicate that these gatherings on the first day of the week were any different from any other day of the week when the apostles were also often found together. If Christians, early Christians, changed the Sabbath day to follow the Sabbath day of the Judeans by one day, then the Christians would have considered their new Sabbath day as the Sabbath. And their first day would actually be the second day of the week on the Judean Sabbath calendar. There were no Roman Sabbath days. There was no official Roman Sabbath day. The Christians were keeping 
for better or worse, calendars from Judea. And, and I'm going to say that it's quite obvious in the Gospel account that the apostles had a different calendar than the Judeans in Jerusalem. But they celebrated the same Sabbath days. There was no Roman Sabbath day, and Christians certainly would not have been obliged to maintain the, the day designation of the Judeans. This is an oversight which is made by all those claiming that the apostles somehow changed the Sabbath day, which they did not change. If the apostles changed the Sabbath day, they would have called their own Sabbath day the Sabbath day rather than continue to use that label to describe the Sabbath day of the Judeans that they were not compelled to observe. All these little arguments over the Sabbath, and the Judeans did not have the right Sabbath day when you compare it to the Old Testament. This is why Paul said, let no man judge you based on feast days, new moons, Sabbath days. Let no man judge you based on those things. Because basically, the Judeans were wrong. They didn't have the right calendar, but the apostles were following their calendar concerning the Sabbaths. Instead, here Paul means what he said. All throughout Scripture, Paul's designation of the Sabbath is consistent with the Sabbath day that was celebrated by the Judeans. The first day of the week would have been when Christians could have gone to the markets. They could have bought and sold whatever they needed, and then they could have assessed their budgets for what they could spare. That's why Paul's telling them to lay up for these collections on the first day of the week. It was that which Paul looked for them to store up in the contribution for the poor in Jerusalem, which he was encouraging. The celebration of what we now call Sunday as the so-called Lord's Day, or the Christian Sabbath, that was not made a standard in Christian communities until the 4th century, in the time of Constantine the Great, while the Judean calendar was certainly not the same as the ancient Hebrew calendar, neither did the apostles seek to change it. Verse 3, And when I have arrived, whomever you may approve, I will send them with instructions, and literally the word is letters, but it could also mean a message, a command, a commission, an instruction. With instructions to have your kindness carried off to Jerusalem. And if perhaps it would be sufficient for me also to make the conveyance, they shall go across with me. So Paul wasn't even sure. He was sure that he was going to Jerusalem. He wasn't even sure that he was going to bring the alms from Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it is clear that someone from the assemblies was chosen 
to deliver gifts to Jerusalem. Where Paul wrote of Titus, I'm sorry, where Paul wrote Titus, and we have sent along with him. Oh, I'm sorry, Paul wrote of Titus in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 from verse 18. And we have sent along with him that brother of whom there is approval in the good message throughout all of the assemblies. And not only, but our fellow traveler, referring to that brother, because Paul does not name him here, has also been handpicked by the assemblies to be endued with this favor, in which he would serve under us to the honor of the prince himself. And our eagerness is avoiding this. Not a one would find fault with us in this strength which is serving under us, referring again to the brother. Titus and his unnamed brother were sent ahead to Corinth by Paul with this letter, now known as 2 Corinthians, ostensibly from, possibly from Macedonia, ostensibly from Nicopolis, where, Chal, where Paul had um, chosen to winter that winter. And Paul followed along sometime later. Now, verse 5. Now I will come to you whenever I shall have passed through Macedonia. Remember that Paul is still in Ephesus. That you may... I'm sorry, for I am, I am passing through Macedonia, or Macedonia. It's properly Macedonia. This is the first, this is the visit to Macedonia, which is recorded in Acts chapter 20. As Paul departed from Ephesus, as we read, because of the trouble caused by the silversmiths. And Acts chapter 20 says in verse 1, and after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. Now, we learn, and we'll discuss this a little later, we learn from Paul's epistle to Titus, which was written from Macedonia, that first Paul had stopped in the Troad expecting to find Titus and didn't. Then, being engaged with you, I will remain, or I will even winter, that you may escort me to whatever, wherever I may traverse. And that word, you may escort me, that word is um, pro tempo, and, and there's no real context here to decide which which sense of the meaning of the word it is used in. Propempo can mean either to send before, to send on, to send forward, or it can mean to escort, to go with, in order to bring somewhere, right? So, so here it could be that wherever you may send me, I may traverse, but Seeing that in the context of the verse, it probably means escort here. We know from uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 31, where Paul gives a final address to the elders 
of the assemblies of Ephesus before departing for Jerusalem, that he had formerly, meaning this time in Acts chapter 19, been in Ephesus for three years. His long sojourn there is described at length in Acts 19. Much earlier, Paul had been in Corinth for a year and a half, as it is described in Acts chapter 18. Then there was a trip to Syria with Priscilla and Aquila, mentioned in Acts 18, verse 18. And there was a shorter initial stay in Ephesus, mentioned in Acts 18, verses 19 through 21. And then there was another trip to Caesarea where he visited Jerusalem and went to Antioch, returning through, by walking, through Galatia and Phrygia, recorded in Acts 18, verses 21 and 23, before he arrived at Ephesus and remained three years, which is recorded in Acts 18, verse 24, and Acts chapter 19. And the purpose of this explanation is to show that it is now at least five years since Paul had been in Corinth when he writes this letter. And Paul arrives there the year after he departs from Ephesus after visiting Macedonia, as it is described in Acts chapter 20, where we read, and when he had gone over those parts, he had given them much exhortation, speaking of Macedonia after he departs from Ephesus, he came into Greece and there abode three months. And when the Jews had laid wait for him, as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. Paul had problems with the Jews five years earlier while he was in Corinth. When they dragged him before the Roman proconsul, Gallio, but they failed to prevail against him. Now he makes this visit after five years, and we see that the vindictive Jews are lying in wait for him, evidently because they desired to kill him. Ultimately, Paul did not, even though he said that he may winter with them. Ultimately, Paul did not spend the winter in Corinth. But leaving Macedonia, Paul did spend three months in Greece, as Luke says that he did. This can be de determined because after departing from Ephesus, Paul had not found Titus in the Troad, as he hoped to, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. But he was able to write a letter to Titus that we know today as Paul's epistle to Titus. This is where he wrote it. He was able to write a letter to Titus and ask him to meet him where he did decide to winter in Nicopolis, Titus chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. 
Nicopolis was in the land of Epirus. Epirus was in the western part of mainland Greece. There are some, even in uh, ancient times, who have made the mistake of believing Nicopolis was in Macedonia. And it's not. It was in western Greece, north of the Isthmus, and southwest of Macedonia, as a part of the province that the Romans called Akahia. Akahia, Greece in, in um, Roman administrative government, Greece was separated into two regions, two primary provinces, Akahia, which was the Peloponnesus and the southern part of the mainland, and Macedonia, which was the northern part of the mainland. Titus must have been in or had the opportunity to go by Ephesus when Paul wrote him and bring Apollos with him to Nicopolis, as Paul had also requested in his epistle to Titus. Titus's coming to Nicopolis while Paul is there is described in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So Paul, Titus met Paul in Nicopolis, as Paul had requested. Later, from Nicopolis, Titus had gone ahead of Paul to deliver the second epistle to the Corinthians, which Paul wrote shortly before departing Nicopolis to go to Corinth. And, and this is all pretty technical, but I believe it's necessary, because when you understand when the epistles of Paul were written, and it's pretty complicated, and how they correlate to Paul's ministry, to the records in the book of Acts, there are no problems. These epistles were not made up. They all, everything falls together right in place. And we see that we can actually piece together from the book of Acts and from Paul's epistles, we can piece all these things together and create a narrative. And these things, these epistles are all legitimate and all of these things are true. There's no doubt. Spending three months in Greece, Nicopolis, where Paul wintered, was in Greece. The winter was considered two months, January and February. That's what the Romans considered to be winter. Those two months, January and February, were during what were where Paul spent the winter in Nicopolis, and that would have afforded Paul one month to visit Corinth. And then, which is the visit that he's anticipating here in Acts 20, it's recorded, he's anticipating it here in this chapter, to visit Corinth, and then, after March, when, when winter was over, to again pass through Macedonia, spend a week in a Troad, where the other apostles had collected Acts 
chapter 20, verses 4 and 6. And then to go on to see the elders of the assemblies of Asia at Miletus, which where Paul must have spent several days or even longer, and then to make it to Jerusalem by sea in time for the Pentecost. The Passover in 57 AD is believed to be April 5th. So Paul had from the end of March until almost the end of May, May 25th or so, for this journey to Jerusalem from Corinth. Verse 7, For I do not presently desire to see you in passing, since I expect to remain with you some time if perhaps the prince permits that now wintering in um, in the compass, if Luke says Paul spent three months in Greece in this trip in Acts chapter 20, he had as much as a month to spend in Corinth. As we have just read, Acts chapter 20 informs us that he spent three months in Greece before returning to Asia through Macedonia. The Jews who wanted to kill Paul must have been camped out at the port in Cancria, waiting for him to try boarding a ship. Returning to Asia through Macedonia afforded Paul the sojourn in the Troad, where he spent one week, and from there the epistle to the Romans was written just before the final trip to Jerusalem. Where he had become a prisoner. Verse 8. Now, I will remain in Ephesus until the Pentecost. Indeed, a great and productive opportunity has been open to me, and many are in opposition. The Greek phrase, heos tes pentecostes, is literally until the 50th. This term is used in the same manner to describe the Feast of First Roots in the Septuagint at Tobit chapter 2, verse 1, and in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verse 32. From Leviticus chapter 23, and you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheep with the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, ye shall number fifty days, and ye shall offer a new meat offering unto Yahweh. Ye shall bring out of your habitations two wave loads of two-tenth deals. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto Yahweh. From the events, as they are recorded in Acts chapter 19, we cannot determine whether Paul was actually able to stay in Ephesus until the Pentecost. If he was not, as he planned to, he must have spent the Pentecost either in or en route 
to Macedonia. This would most likely be the Pentecost of 56 AD. Paul seems to have left Ephesus rather abruptly, and therefore very likely before he had actually planned to leave, after the troubles with the silversmiths. In Acts chapter 19, verse 21, before Luke records the trouble with the silversmiths, he does record for Paul the very same intentions which Paul expresses here. To depart from Ephesus and to go through Macedonia and Achaia, Corinth was located in the Roman province of Achaia in Greece, before going on to Jerusalem, and where Paul also said, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. With stops at Miletus and Troad along the way, the passage in Acts chapter 19 did indeed forebode Paul's future very accurately. There was another Pentecost mentioned in Acts 20, verse 16, which is a year after this one, after Paul had already been in Greece three months and departed through Macedonia to end up in the Troad, by which Paul hoped to be in Jerusalem which was most likely 57 A.D. The dates can be determined from Luke's statements and acts concerning Paul's arrest, how long he was imprisoned, and the dates of the terms of the Roman officials, Felix and Festus, who held Paul in custody and can be determined from secular sources. So we can get a grasp on these dates, we can date Paul's arrest to 57 AD. This raises another issue. We see how the Pentecost was counted by the Sabbaths, seven Sabbaths, and, and then another day, the day after the Sabbaths, we count seven Sabbaths, and then we have the Pentecost, meaning that seven times seven is 49, and one day is 50, so the Pentecost is called the 50th day. The Feast of First Fruits in Hebrew is called the 50th day in Greek. Well, Paul thought it was awfully important to be in Jerusalem for the Pentecost. So Paul must have been counting those Sabbath days according to the, the Judean Sabbath days because Paul didn't say that he had to be in Jerusalem the day after the Pentecost. Just a little digression. I'm not really grinding on a calendar. I don't think in this age... It's important which day we keep the Sabbath. It's more important to keep a Sabbath because the Judeans, they weren't using the right calendar either. But the reason why I'm pointing all this out is because there are identity Christians who criticize their identity Christian brothers over what day they keep a Sabbath. And that's one of those peripheral issues that we shouldn't be so hard on each other about. Paul said, let no man judge you. Feasts concerning feasts, new moons, and Sabbaths. Does that mean we don't have to keep a Sabbath? Of course not. We should keep a Sabbath if we honor Yahweh our God. Some men celebrate every day. 
and some men celebrate a particular day, if we spend every day trying to please God and do things for him, well, it's hard to distinguish the Sabbaths, but we should still keep one and recognize the need for it. The word for um, in the Christian New Testament, the word for opportunity in verse 8, I honestly don't even really know what the King James has there. They have a door. They translated it literally. That word is a literal Greek word for door, thora, but here Paul certainly uses it metaphorically in the same manner that we use in our modern English idiom that an open door is an opportunity. Bedell and Scott do not mention any such usage among classical writers. I've um, perused Joseph Thayer, the same thing. Thayer notes the metaphor, but he doesn't cite any secular Greek writers that ever used it. It seems to me, from my reading, that this might be the first time that it appears in extant literature that Paul has used the word door as a as a metaphor for opportunity. I've never seen it before Paul. That's what I'm trying to say. At this point in his ministry at Ephesus, Paul was confident enough to send Timothy and Erastus off to Macedonia ahead of him. And we read in Acts chapter 19, verses 22 and 23, but he himself, meaning Paul, stayed in Asia for a season. And the same time there arose no small stir about that way. In other words, that as soon as Paul sent Timothy and Erastus off to Macedonia, that's when the troubles with the silversmiths had arisen. In the passages of Acts which follow, the silversmith, Demetrius, noted how many people were abandoning paganism for the Christian teachings of Paul. And he felt, as he expressed, that the economy and the religion of Ephesus, based around the pagan idol Artemis, were threatened by all these people who were abandoning it for Christianity. This seems to be the fruit of what Paul called here a great and productive opportunity, which, Paul ca which caused Paul to have to depart from Ephesus. However, Paul's speech to the elders of the assembly of Ephesus, given a year later, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 20, shows that even though Paul's ministry in Ephesus ended rather abruptly, it was still quite successful. Verse 10. Now, if perhaps Timothy should come, you see that he may be without fear before you, for he performs the work of the prince, even as I. Therefore, not anyone should set him at naught, 
or not anyone should despise him, but send him forward in peace in order that he would come to me, for I expect him along with the brethren. And at one point, Paul had written Timothy, I believe, about his youth. Timothy was a young man, and young men are more apt to be despised by their elders who are set in their ways and don't always admit that they can be taught by younger men. Perhaps Paul expected Timothy and Erastus to precede him into Greece as well as into Macedonia where he sent them, as it is recorded in Acts 19.22. Timothy must not have gone ahead into Corinth, but rather he must have stayed in Macedonia until he was reunited with Paul, because Timothy is with Paul when he writes his second epistle to the Corinthians, which is only a few months after 1 Corinthians, and before Paul gets to Corinth, which is told from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Timothy is there with Paul. Titus is not mentioned at all by Luke in Acts chapter 19. Yet it is Titus who is later sent by Paul with that second epistle to the Corinthians. And we know that the situation exists from both 2 Corinthians and from the epistle to Titus. So Timothy is in Ephesus with Paul, is sent ahead to Macedonia, where shortly afterwards he is reunited with Paul, and as the accounts in Acts relate, Timothy remains with Paul in the Troad and on to Miletus, where Paul is en route to Jerusalem, where he's going to be arrested. And what Luke does not record is that Timothy must have accompanied Paul to Jerusalem and must have either been arrested along with Paul or arrested around the same time that Paul was arrested. This is evident because it may be established, as we have done when we gave our Acts presentation and as we will do when we present the epistle to the Hebrews, hopefully, Later this year, not next year, Yahweh willing. This is evident because it may be established that Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews while he was a prisoner in Caesarea. Although, producing only the English versions, on the surface it seems to have been written from Rome. And in chapter 13 of that epistle, Paul writes, Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. Paul also hoped to be released when he was a prisoner in Caesarea and ostensibly to return to Antioch or to Jerusalem Wherever Paul, it, it cannot be told whether Paul was writing his epistle to the Hebrews, to Hebrews in Jerusalem or Antioch. 
But Paul hoped to return, to be released and return with Timothy, but that never happened. Timothy was released and later voluntarily visited Paul in Rome, but Paul was never released. Verse 12. Now, concerning the brother, Apollos, I had much encouraged him in order that he may come to you with the brethren, meaning Timothy and Silas. And not at all had he a desire that he would come now, but he will come whenever he has the opportunity. As it is recorded in Acts chapter 18, Paul ended his travels with Priscilla and Aquila by leaving them in Ephesus and departing for Jerusalem, after which he traveled through Antioch and Galatia. Apollos, after Paul left, Apollos then appeared in Ephesus and was described as knowing only the baptism of John. Acts 18.25, whereby Priscilla and Aquila then brought him to Christ. When Paul returned to Ephesus sometime later, Apollos was already in Corinth preaching the gospel there. So they apparently missed each other. Luke records that Apollos was in Corinth, and then he records Paul's arrival in Ephesus. Paul spoke highly of Apollos, as he mentioned him several times in the early chapters of this epistle, 1 Corinthians. But only here do we learn that Apollos is most certainly in Ephesus with Paul as he writes this epistle. Writing this epistle to Titus from Macedonia some months after this, Paul asks Titus to bring Apollos with him to meet him in Nicopolis in Greece. This establishes that even though in the book of Acts they seem to keep missing each other, Paul did have developed and have an ongoing relationship with Apollos while they were evidently both in Ephesus. So during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus, Apollos must have returned from Corinth to Ephesus, and Luke didn't, didn't record it. Yeah, you know, for, um, as a digression, when we discussed the book of Acts, we explained why Luke's records were so piecemeal. Paul had, um, at the end of Acts chapter 16, I believe, when Paul was in the jail in Philippi, in Philippi with Silas. Paul and Silas were released, and they returned to the house of Lydia, and they left. And Luke says that they left, where it's fully evident that Luke stayed behind in Philippi while Paul and Silas departed. And then Paul went down into Athens, eventually into Athens and to Corinth, and, and made his other journeys. There's no record of his being reconciled with Luke. Until the apostles recollect in the Troad, 
in Acts chapter 20, where, where a lot of Paul's companions from various places converge on a Troad and meet him. And Luke specifically says in Acts chapter 20 that Paul was already in the Troad with the other apostles, and he, along with other unnamed people, sailed from Philippi to the Troad to meet with Paul. So from Acts chapter 16 and all the way to Acts chapter 20, that period covers seven or eight years. And it's very possible that there are unrecorded meetings during that time of Paul and Luke. But Paul and Luke were not together during that time. Everybody thinks that from the time Paul left Antioch in Acts chapter 15, that Luke was his constant companion. And that's not true. Luke only becomes Paul's constant companion on a trip to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20, and from the time Paul is arrested, then Luke seems to, to be in his periphery, for the most part, until his execution in Rome. Verse 13. Be alert. Be established in the faith. Behave as men. Be strong. All things of yours must be done in love. And here Paul reinforces the need for Christian love towards one another, about which he lectured them at length. In chapters 12 through 14 of this epistle. Verse 15. Now I exhort you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that they are the first fruits of Achaia, and they have appointed themselves for service to the saints, that you also should be subject to these, and to each who is cooperating and toiling. There are some um, interpolations here in the phrase, the house of Stephanus. The Codex Claromontanus inserts the words and Fortunatus, and then the Codex Ephraimi on top of that and adds furthermore and Akahicus. The three names belong together in all the manuscripts in verse 17, but here it should only be the house of Stephanus. In the salutation of Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 16, Paul says, Salute my well-beloved, and this man must be in Rome at this time, Salute my well-beloved Epinetus, who is the first fruits of Achaia unto Christ. So with that, we might want to relate Epinetus to the house of Stephanus. That's possible. Seemingly, Paul uses the term first fruits to describe early converts to Christianity, and, and, and there could very well have been many people converted to Christ as Paul first entered Achaia and began to speak in the Judean assembly halls. Where Paul says, you also should be subject to such as these, 
and to each who is cooperating, cooperating. That means, you know, he who loves me keeps my commandments, cooperating and toiling. Christians should recognize the gifts that God has granted to their fellow Christians and defer to their fellow Christians in those areas. This is an unspoken element of what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in his discourse on the functions of the various members of the body of Christ. The eye is only an eye, and the hand is only a hand, and a hand can't be an eye, so the hand should lead the seeing to the eye, and the eye should lead the holding to the hand, right? We should recognize one another's gifts and defer to our brethren who do, do certain things better than we do. We could try to understand those functions, which they do, but we shouldn't all want to be an eye or a hand. Deference. Deference to your fellow Christians is a sign of love for your brethren. And it's also a sign of humility before God. Verse 17. And I am delighted at the presence of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Akahikas, which simply is like a nickname describing somebody who's from Akahia. It's not a given name. Seeing that they have filled your deficiency, so these people are, are actually ministering to the Christians in Corinth. Indeed, they have relieved my spirit and yours. Therefore, you should acknowledge such as these. The assemblies, plural, churches, it's not one big church, right? The assemblies of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you greatly in the prince. With the assembly at their house, all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And some of the manuscripts are divided between Prisca and Priscilla, or Priscilla, that, that's, um, Prisca's, it's the same name. Prisca's a shortened, familiar form of the same name. And the manuscripts are divided wherever the name appears. Sometimes, in the oldest manuscripts, sometimes Paul used one, sometimes Paul used another. Verse 21, <coughs> this salutation is of Paul with my own hand. Now, some of Paul's epistles explicitly tell us that they were dictated by Paul, but they were recorded, they were written by another person. That's the epistle to the Romans. Here, Paul tells us, and at the end of Galatians, he tells us that the salutation's written with his own hand, meaning that he did not write the rest of the epistle. It's a long letter, and he had very poor eyesight, so he employed others to write the letters out for them. But the writer is, the author is still Paul of Tarsus. 
without a doubt. This salutation is of Paul with my own hand. If anyone does not love the prince, or love the Lord, if you will, if anyone does not love the prince, he must be accursed, a rebel to be destroyed. That's the subtitle of tonight's program. These um, Judeo-Christian churches believe that that means, O Lord, come, and it certainly does not. Paul is not changing the subject right smack in the middle of the sentence. Paul is not changing the subject. This Greek word, or words, if you will, maranatha, some manuscripts don't even translate this, this phrase. Some translations leave it alone. They leave it in Greek, which is an admission that they really don't understand it. The Greek word, or words, maranatha, some, some, some editors, some lexicographers, the people that make the Greek lexicons, some textual editors, the people that um, read all the variant manuscripts and come up with the Greek text of what they think the New Testament is saying, They write Maranatha as one word. Some lexicographers and editors write Maran, M-A-R-A-N, and then A-T-H-A, Maranatha, as two words. And some write Maranatha, T-H-A, the T-H is only one letter in Greek. Maranatha. So there's three ways that the editors and lexicographers parse this word. And we say parse because in the original manuscripts, there are no spaces between the letters of any of the words. Before they're translated, it has to be decided. The boundaries between the words so that we can separate them and distinguish them and translate them into English. If we were native speakers of Greek, we would just be able to scan each line and understand in our minds the boundaries of the words, right? But we're not, so we have to parse them first. This word maranatha, some editors leave it unparsed, and others parse it one way, and others parse it another way. Liddell and Scott say that the word or words is a Syriac phrase, and they claim that it's equivalent to the Greek phrase, hokorios hekai, which is the exclamation in English, Lord come, and which is the popular interpretation. Joseph Thayer says that they are Chaldean words, referring to Maranatha, meaning our Lord cometh, or our Lord will come. And that shows that even Joseph Thayer, the grammarian, can't really determine the tense of any verb in the word Maranatha. It might mean our Lord cometh. It might mean our Lord will come, according to him. George Ricker Berry 
says that these are two Aramaic words, meaning our Lord cometh, for which he cites the margin of the Revised Standard Version of the Bible. So he's just following somebody else. James Strong, in the Greek-English lexicon of section of his concordance, says that the words are of Chaldean origin, meaning our Lord has come. So he's changing the tense of the verb again, or an exclamation of the approaching divine judgment. Now that I would agree with. Of these four definitions, and I'm sure you'll find many similar ones in many different lexicons, of these four definitions, only Strong's second definition is even close, and we can only wonder why he did not explain it further. I wish he would have. Some translations, and even some editions of the King James Version, leave both this phrase, Maranatha, and the Greek word, because it is a real Greek word, anathema, <laughs> they leave it untranslated. They write, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be anathema maranatha. And they leave it at that. They don't even translate it. Sayer is the only lexicographer I have seen who writes the term as one word and not as two. And then, Thayer's definition defies the grammar. None of the lexicographers, which I've, I'm acquainted with, offer meaningful support to substantiate their supposed definitions, even though Mara can be a lord in Hebrew. That part is true. It can be. It's not necessarily a lord. The same word has other meanings, as we shall see. Both Strong and Liddell and Scott each write Marin, M-A-R-A-N, and then Atha as a separate word, A-T-H-A. And so do many later Greek manuscripts which are cited by the Novum Testamentum Greca. The majority text and other late manuscripts have the word as one word, Maranatha. They don't separate it. The editors of both the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Greca 27th and 28th editions write Marana and then a space, and then sa. The original great uncles and the original papyri manuscripts of the New Testament, when, when I say original, I mean those which exist from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th centuries, do not put spaces between words and have no punctuation. So the Neslialand, 27th edition, marks the reading in all of them as uncertain. But the 28th edition admits that Maranatha is a single word. They don't parse it. A good question is this. How can 
all of these educated lexicographers and Greek editors, how can they define a word that they cannot even parse? They can't even decide on, on, on the components, on where to split the word in two, if indeed it's two words. So if they can't de decide how to parse it, how the hell could they define it? They can't define it, not at all. And why should they offer a definition that they can't substantiate? I can't attempt to explain why none of these lexicographers endeavored, at least apparently, to define the term Maranatha from Hebrew, rather than imagine it to be some Aramaic term that they themselves can't even properly define unless they're simply following tradition or perhaps some Jew explained it to them and they believed it. That's the most likely explanation. From Strong's Hebrew and Chaldee Dictionary. We can look at Strong's number 4754, and the word is Mara. And Mara is a verb which means to rebel. And this, it's spelled by strong, M-A-R-A, in English, representing the Hebrew letters. It's Strong's number 48, I'm sorry, 4784. There's another verb, Mara, M-A-R-A-H, and it means to be bitter or to rebel. And the Hebrews use that same word, which means bitter, metaphorically, as a verb meaning to rebel. And there's proof of that, that Paul understood it that way in his epistle to the, to the Hebrews, where Paul talked about the rebels in the desert. And he used the Greek verb pikreno, pikreno to describe rebels and the act of rebellion. And that word doesn't bear that meaning in Greek. It means to be bitter in Greek. But Paul was using it metaphorically as a Hebraism to describe rebellion. It only means to be bitter in Greek. And that's because the Hebrew term mara can mean to be bitter, and that's the way Naomi used the word in the book of Ruth. Or it means to rebel. And that's a Hebrew metaphoric use of the term. And that's clear in many scriptures. It's Strong's number 4751 and Strong's number 4785 we see the term Mara as a noun. And those nouns have the same meaning as the corresponding verbs at 47.84 and 47.54, which we just explained. They can be translated as rebel. There are other words in Strong's number 47.55, 
and 4785, which are nouns and proper names, Mara and Mara, with and without the H, and both are said to be derived from 4751. All of these terms can describe a rebel, somebody who is rebellious. Now, from Strong's Hebrew and Chaldee Dictionary, we also have the following. Strong's number 5421. Natha, N A T H A. Mara, Natha. Same way it's spelled here. In Paul's Greek in 1 Corinthians 16.22. Natha means to tear out according to Strong's. But it's another word. Strong's number 5422. <clears throat> Nathats, the same word with the T-S on the end, which means to tear down or to destroy. Therefore, we'll take the, um, the Greek phrase, eto anathema maranatha, in this manner, eto, where the King James has let him be. Eto is the imperative, third-person singular of the Greek verb aini, which means to be. Eto means he must be. Anathema is a Greek adjective which means accursed. That's all it means, basically. Mara, if we read it, from the Hebrew nouns found at Strong's 4754, I'm sorry, 4751 and 4785. Mara is a rebel. And Natha, if we read it as a passive infinitive, because as we saw from comparing the lexicographers, Thayer and Strong's and Liddell and Scott, it's hard to determine the tense of a verb when it's borrowed from one language into another. You can't really determine it. You can't really write it properly in a grammatical sense. Natha, if we read it as a passive infinitive verb, means to be destroyed. It may be asserted that this is a natural literal translation, which is entirely proper in its context. If anyone does not love the prince, he must be accursed, a rebel to be destroyed. This translation is also entirely agreeable to many other New Testament scriptures. And seeing the time and how long this program's gone on, I'm going to try to run through this. First, there are the Apostle John's comments concerning antichrists, of which we have an example in 2 John. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus is coming to flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. That would be accursed. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ 
he has both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and brings not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, neither greet him. For he that bids him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. Then there are the words of the Apostle Peter in chapter 2 of his second epistle where he talks of false teachers denying the Lord that bought them and who bring upon themselves swift destruction. Peter then compares these to the angels that sinned and calls them cursed children and natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. This is exactly what Paul is saying in summary here. Exactly. That if anyone does not love the prince, he must be accursed, a rebel to be destroyed. And there are the comments of the Apostle Jude, who describes those same people which Peter had described in much the same manner, and says in his one short epistle, that there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of God, our God, into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone does not love the prince, he is an accursed rebel to be destroyed. That these men crept in unawares means that they are not of the children of Israel. John said much the same thing in his first epistle in chapter 2, where he said, again, concerning the Antichrists, little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard, that Antichrist shall come even now. There are many Antichrists, whereby we know it is the last time. Then John, Jude calls them interlopers, right? Then John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But you have an anointing and unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. Jude discusses how the interlopers came in amongst the Israelites, and John discusses how the interlopers came out from among the Israelites, because they are antichrists. And the true sheep hear the voice of their master, and they had become Christians. This is the gospel message separating the wheat from the tares, and it was designed to do so from the very beginning. Like Peter, Jude also relates the interlopers to the fallen angels of Genesis. And he says, but these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. He then says that these are spots in your feast of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds, they are without water, carried about of the winds, trees whose fruit is withered, without fruit, twice dead, because their clouds are not water, they don't have the spirit of God, because they're bastards, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out of their own shame, wandering stars, 
to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Obviously, they are not candidates for repentance or conversion to Christ because Judah already said that they were before of old ordained this condemnation. Like in Genesis chapters 3 and 6, Jude later said that these were sensual, not having the spirit. Therefore, they cannot be descendants of Adam. As Paul explained here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if one has a natural Adamic body, then one has a spiritual Adamic body. Therefore, they can... They can only be cursed children as Jude calls them, and natural brute beasts because they are bastards, and they cannot truly love Yahweh God or his Christ. As Christ had said in the gospel, if you love me, keep my commandments. Once again, this is exactly what Paul is saying in summary here, that if anyone does not love the prince, he must be accursed, a rebel, to be destroyed. Although other interpretations of the words heto anathema mara nafa may be possible, we must let this simple and natural interpretation speak for itself because not only does it fit perfectly into the context of Paul's overall statement, but it also agrees perfectly with all of these other statements from the other apostles. And Paul is not changing the topic in the middle of the phrase. That's crazy. Verse 23, the favor of the prince, Yahshua Christ, is with you. My love is with you all in Christ Yahshua. The year is most likely 56 AD. Paul of Tarsus would soon depart from Ephesus for the Troad, not find Titus as he had evidently expected, and moved on to Macedonia. What he did in Macedonia is not recorded. However, he wintered for two months in Nicopolis, in the district of Epirus, a part of the Roman province of Achaia in Greece. Being reunited with Titus and Timothy, he would write his second epistle to the Corinthians and send it ahead before he himself came to Corinth. He spent one month in Corinth, and in 57 AD, Paul began his last and faithful journey to Jerusalem. Yahweh, Yahweh willing. Soon, we shall begin a presentation of Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night. Tomorrow night, the devil in Luther's dream. Part two.